What exactly does defund the police mean? What are its uh, proponents? What are they asking for? Really, all this is is a reassignment of both responsibilities and resources that are currently given to the police to other existing or new organizations and institutions. So what this is a call for, you know, in large part is around where we're uh, allocating uh, funding that ultimately is being used to deal with issues related to mental health, right? So the police are often the first responders in instances when people are in mental health crises. And there may be reason for that because of the presence of violence. But ultimately, I think many people, especially uh, experts in the area, acknowledge that the police are not the most appropriate institution to be responding to people who are dealing with mental health issues. One, because they're not well equipped to deal with those issues. And secondly, because you know they have the ability to use lethal force. And too often we see that lethal force being used in those instances. But there are other areas, I would argue, you know, with respect to the issues of poverty and homelessness and, and youth programming as well. That, uh, again, these priorities could be better served by other organizations or institutions. Do we know what the research says when it comes to community-based programs or a community-based approach and what effects it has on society? Yeah, so I will say, like, in a nutshell, the research findings are somewhat mixed. You know, community policing came about in large part because with the introduction of the car and the radio and the increasing size and complexity of cities, the police became more foreign to the public that they served. And so community policing was really an attempt to re-engage with a community that the police had largely lost touch with. Many of the programs that uh, operate in our more marginalized neighborhoods for young people um, come under the banner of crime prevention. And I understand there may be a crime prevention element to after-school programs, you know, job skills and trainings programs uh, that create bonds between institutions and, and individuals. But at the same time, those programs would likely have a crime prevention element, even if they didn't involve the police. I understand the desire to build relationships between those communities and the police, but ultimately, police involvement of those includes uh, individuals who are very highly paid. So the other part I think that's important to recognize with respect to the defunding the police is acknowledging that we have some of the highest paid police in the world here in Canada. And to me, that's actually a wonderful thing. The better paid the police are, the less likely they are to engage in corrupt behavior because they've got a lot more to lose. So that's wonderful. But when we have them involved in things that they don't necessarily need to be involved in, we're paying too much for those services. And when we have them involved in things that could be better done by other organizations or institutions, as one of my students yesterday noted, we're essentially funding them to fail, right? And so it's just a really, the conversations about a reconsideration about the role and function of the police and the things we're asking them to do. Because over two centuries, we've asked them to do more and more, and, and their budgets reflect that. Well, the premier was asked about this, and Doug Ford said that he doesn't necessarily support taking money away from policing, but would support enhanced community programs. Can you do or can you have both, I think? Well, I'm not sure that a, a fiscal conservative like Doug Ford uh, should think that he could necessarily do both because that's going to involve more money. And again, it's going to involve spending money on things that are not necessarily useful. Uh, I understand his comments in the context of we need to recognize as well that police agencies and their associations are, are very powerful institutions and they're very politically powerful institutions. They have literally thousands of members here in the province of Ontario, for example, and those members have family and friends. And so it's, you know, very politically unappetizing to challenge the police and certainly to challenge police budgets. And that can be 
of huge detriment to elected officials. You know, there are uh, evidence reports in the United States demonstrating that uh, city councillors, for example, who advocate for defunding the police receive poorer police services in their uh, jurisdictions, which of course is going to negatively affect their political futures. So uh, it, it's politically unpalatable. I, I must say, from the work that I've done, I've encountered enough police officers who um, really have had enough of policing. You know, they, they might be a, a, a small portion of, of police officers overall, but we think if, if we think about this realignment of priorities and, and um, redirection of, of revenue, I'm sure there are enough people who are serving police officers now who would like to have another career, who would be happy to go and work in one of these other areas and do the work that they were doing under the banner of policing, but in another element without all of the, the law enforcement action there, perhaps at, at a bit of a lower pay, but hopefully with a, a, a better, more effective and more efficient outcome. All right. Meantime, uh, speaking about George Floyd yesterday, Police Chief Mark Saunders said that, quote, it speaks to the value of why we need body-worn cameras. Do you think that body-worn cameras by police is that part of the uh, solution to the problem of police brutality? It's, it's most certainly not a silver bullet. Um, you know, public still hasn't seen the body-worn camera footage from the Floyd incident, although I don't think necessarily we need it. I think that, you know, there are several problems with body-worn cameras. Uh, first of all, uh, many of the devices have to be turned on uh, by the officers in question. And so, you know, that raises questions about when they would be used. I, I find it... Uh, it's not amusing, um, a bit disheartening that in some instances in the United States, again, we've seen uh, the, the body cameras uh, like either not operating or falling off um, when that footage is crucial. And, you know, people have joked, well, you know, we've got GoPros that will capture everything as someone's jumping out of a helicopter or, 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 or whitewater rafting. Why can't our body camera footage capture the same type of thing? But then there are really questions about access. Who has access to that information? How long it's stored for? If you think about all the police officers, for example, in Canada, recording what they do at, at all points in time, that's going to create a lot of data. How long will that data be stored? Uh, who will have access to it? What about the privacy issues that come from that? Uh, there has been a bit of evidence that um, it body-worn cameras reduce um, frivolous complaints about the police, right, and, and may increase civility. But on the flip side of that as well, evidence to demonstrate that police officers may actually be more inclined to engage in violence when they have a body camera on because they feel that they're going to be vindicated by the footage. Uh, I think, you know, the important thing to acknowledge is that officers, when they um, perceive a threat, you know, generally perceive that their life or someone else's life is threatened, are able to use force, right? And so um, it's a body-worn camera is you know, not always going to be able to um, show enough information for, for, a, for a judge or a jury, whoever that might be, to you know, say that that officer did not perceive a threat. Um, so yeah, so I, I certainly don't think it's, it's a magic bullet. It's, it's one option. Um, but to me, it may be one that's being used to avoid the larger issues uh, at hand. Just finally, I wanted to ask you, there are protest demonstrations this afternoon, of course, on the streets of Toronto. There will be throughout the weekend and right across uh, Canada. Uh, as a professor of sociology, what's your take on the social uprising uh, that we've seen? Uh, do you think that we're truly at uh, finally a turning point here? So I, I, you know, part of me is cynical and says we've been here so many times before, right? And, and not even just 2014 and, and 1990s and the 1960s, but prior to that. So, uh, you know, there's a cynical part of me that that says this is just one in, in a number of um, examples of social unrest that have come largely as a result of Police use of force and, and police violence. Um, something you know different. The, the the length at which these 
um, the unrest has been sustained, right? So I think you know the number of days is is important, and and the spread throughout the United States, for example, and really around the world, does signal uh, something uh, to me that uh, says that this might be different. Um, I think in order for it to be different, though, to me, social unrest is very important, right? Because it draws attention to issues that the people, you know, uh, affected by often experience, but many others are not aware of, and so. To me, uh, you know, social unrest is, is a very important um, catalyst of social change, but that has to be followed by concrete action by politicians. I think we're in a position here in certain jurisdictions in Canada to see that happening. Um, I'm not so certain under the current administration in the United States. A whole lot would change. Of course, governors have a lot of power. Mayors have a lot of power. But, you know, uh, Donald Trump's doing nothing but try and sow secret divisions between uh, different f- fractions or groups within his society.